Thanks for listening to the seventh episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Maneshian. Today's episode is entitled Meditations on Narash and New Classical Music. My conversation with John Hodian. listening to a song called Ararat, subtitled Arto's Song, as performed by Bette Williams and John Hodian as part of their 2008 Epiphany Project album entitled Hindach. Arto Tunchpoyajan provides the guest vocals. Before my conversation with John Hodian, I wanted to say thanks for listening in. We continue to gain listeners month over month while also expanding the number of countries tuning in. At last count, That number was 23, including our friends in France, Italy, and Sweden, among others. The podcast is available on all major digital platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor, just to name a few.
hit that subscribe button and share the news with those who might be interested. John Hodian's journey as a composer and musician from his hometown of Philadelphia to Yerevan via New York City has yielded over 250 soundtracks for documentary films, a New York Emmy Award, and scores of composed music. A Yamaha artist, John has spent the better portion of two decades focused on the Epiphany Project with his wife, Bette Williams, and most recently, the Narash Ensemble. Having engaged directly with Armenia since 2006, John and his considerable talents and wisdom has influenced dozens of musicians and composers through his careful guidance and tutelage. His latest creation, music set to the rarely seen poems of Mugardich Narash, fuses his extensive knowledge of a multitude of musical genres, creating what may be the most important work coming out of Armenia in years. Our conversation was recorded on August 8, 2020, using Skype audio. So without any further ado, here's John Hodian. John Hodian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ravi. Thanks for having me. John, you are up in Woodstock, New York right now. Uh, due to COVID, uh, you are usually touring with Narash Ensemble, uh, and you also have a home in Armenia. How has this uh, kind of lockdown, in essence, either helped or hurt kind of your compositional juices? Well, I'd love to say that it's been wonderful and I've come up with a whole new body of work in this downtime, <laughs> but, but that wouldn't be honest. Uh, it, it's been un really kind of crippling because uh, we had so many uh, shows lined up. April, May, June, and July, each month was going to be a separate little tour. And of course, it all went away. Um, as of now, we are slated to go out September again. Uh, that was going to be a fairly big tour. And and Europe, we play mostly in Europe. Uh, we've never been to America. We, of course, play in Armenia, but we've, we've never been to America. Um, and Europe is opening up and they're doing these concerts, but they're not letting in people from America or Armenia, unfortunately. So we don't know whether September is going to happen or not. It's not looking good right now. So it, it hasn't been a great thing. On the other hand, it has given me some time to do some projects that I might not have done otherwise. One of which was uh, I got a chance to mix this live record. And I also worked on a project with Isabel Baraktarian, uh, which was kind of interesting. So, uh, you know, we make the we make the best of it. You know, John, you've had such a long and fruitful career as not only a musician, but, you know, really as a composer. Um, and the project that we're kind of referring to, again, is the, the Narash Ensemble. You know, for those who may not be kind of familiar with this project, who was Narash and how did this particular project come to life? Okay. Well, Narash uh, was a poet and a priest from the 1500s. Not to be confused with the other Nagash of Natan, who, who was also a, a painter and a poet. Uh, this Nagash was uh, much uh, longer before. Um, and he, he had a very big following as a priest. Uh, and he was outside of Der Becker. Um, at that time in the 1500s, you know, that was a very interesting 
area because there it was Muslim ruled. But there were many Armenians there, but there are also uh, Jews and, and Muslims, everything. Uh, but it was Muslim ruled. Nahash built a church for his followers that had a steeple that was higher than any of the local mosques. You probably know where the story is going. Uh, this didn't sit well with the local Muslim <laughs> authorities, and they, they told him to take it down. He refused to take it down. They kind of went back and forth with it a little bit. He ended up being sent out of town. He ended up being forced out and lived the rest of his life in exile. And so the poems that he wrote were, many of them are about living a life in exile. And it goes without saying why this is very important to many Armenians, um, contemporary Armenians, Armenians from all time. He wrote very meaningfully about uh, the sorrows of living a life away from your homeland. So like I said, I think it's something a lot of us can relate to. Um, you know, how did you go about going ahead and picking the um, the ensemble members? And what was your compositional kind of process with regards to marrying these particular lyrics and poems with the actual music itself? Mm -hmm. Well, the whole idea for the ensemble started about 15 years ago, when I first started going to Yerevan, I mean, I, I was born in America, grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, moved to New York fairly early on, uh, but then started going to Yerevan about 15 years ago. And of course, you go to all the touristy places and some of the non-touristy places. But I was in Garni Temple and um, I there was nobody there. This was kind of before it was such a big tourist attraction. Again, this was like 15 years ago. And there was nobody there. There's no electricity there or anything. And I, I'm walking around inside this temple. And for I'm sure a lot of your listeners may be familiar with it, but those who don't know it, it's a temple that dates back to pagan times. And the acoustics in there are just wonderful. So I'm walking around there, and I suddenly hear this most amazing sound, the most amazing music I've ever heard in my life. And it's a singer. And it's such a pure, beautiful sound. It turns out it was this woman, Hasmik Bagdasarian. And she was singing a, a bunch of a variety of Armenian uh, spiritual music, medieval spiritual music. And just the sound of her voice in that temple was the inspiration for, for this ensemble. It made me want to do something with it. it made, you know, it made me want to steal it. When you're a composer, the truth about composers, in fact, Stravinsky had a great quote. Stravinsky says, you know, um, bad composers borrow, good composers steal. And it's a very it's a very interesting and, and it's funny on, on the surface, but it's very meaningful. Bad composers will take a little bit of this, a little bit of that and kind of put a make a pastiche of something and it ends up being kind of kitschy and it's like not really well integrated it's like having i i've often made reference to this you know when the those recordings of like medieval monk chants came out with like uh, disco beats underneath and it's just like you know do we really need that is it really serving anybody's is it really the best of anything here uh but a good composer will steal now when you steal something it becomes yours it becomes yours and you can integrate it it becomes part of your own dna 
and then becomes part of what you then come out with. It's it's the difference between, you know, going deep with something or taking a very surfacey approach to it. So I wanted to steal the sound of Hosmic's voice in that temple and then do something with it, you know, with with my own background, both my Western classical background, my background in improvisation and so on and so forth. So that was the original inspiration for the ensemble. And uh, I had never met Hosmic before. I, I met her for the first time that day. And I said, this is so beautiful. I want to do this. I want to I'm going to create this. I want to we're going to tour the world. We're going to blah, blah, blah. And she's uh, she's just started backing away from me like I'm a crazy man. But <laughs> after after two or three years, it took a long, long time, it took a long time to find the right text. And then it took a long time to you know develop the music. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But I, I could not find the right text for anything. And it's so important. Uh, I have to really believe in what I'm saying, even though they're not my words. I have to have a, a real strong connection to them. Or I'm, I, I just can't bring myself to do it. So I was thrilled when I found these Nakash poems because they're, they're not known at all. They're very little known, even amongst, you know, medieval Armenian literature scholars. Um, so I was thrilled when I found this this tiny fragment of this text, and then I did a lot more research, and it turns out that Nagash had left uh, only 15 poems behind. And so the over the last 12 years or so, I've set all 15 of them to music, and that is what the Nagash Ensemble plays. Yeah, that's really remarkable, because when you think of uh, Dikan Agert, uh, the current day Diyarbakir, it's really not that far from where you and your family live uh, when you're in Armenia. Um, but let's let's kind of focus again a little bit on this ensemble. You have worked with and are working with some of the greatest musicians uh, in Armenia. I mean, Adam Negorosian, as far as the oud, he is the top oud player in Armenia. And you've got uh, a couple of other vocalists as well, other than Hasmik working with you, in addition to... Um, a couple of duduk and Armenian wind instrument uh, performers as well. Could you kind of shed a little light on on that dynamic and what kind of energy and spirit that that's given you to take this on the road? Yeah, it's been uh, it's just been a fantastic ride. I must say I got very very lucky early on when I was looking for players and singers. Uh, Emmanuel Hof of Nasyan uh, was a duduk player. Uh, and I just think he's he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal duduk player. Uh, you know, nothing reveals a person's soul more than their approach to their duduk playing. And and I absolutely love the way he plays. And plus, he's just remarkable to work with in a studio. He's a great improviser. He can he can you know I'm always writing things outside of the register in bad keys, so on and so forth. And he it, nothing phases him. He'll just He'll transpose it. He'll use a different instrument. He plays shvi. He plays piku. He plays all sorts of Armenian instruments. And then my whole player is a phenomenon. Uh, Tigran Hofapnasian. They're not related. Uh, I just think he's he's brilliant. He's just a phenomenal improviser. Now all this music is written out. I mean, I'm a composer. I take a more or less Western classical approach to things. Uh, there is room for improvisation. There's always room for ornamentation, kind of in a Baroque sense, you know, in a, in a box sense. You can do the ornaments how you want. But uh, most of the music is written out. 
But with the dull part, of course, what I write and what he plays are miles apart. And as you can imagine, what he plays is substantially better. So it's really, really a gift. I, I didn't look that far and wide. These, these people were the first people I chose. And then the two other singers besides Hosmik, uh, again, I just got incredibly lucky. I had heard about uh, uh, Tatev Mosefsian because uh, many people use her in the new music world of Armenia. Many of the, the younger composers, because she can sight read anything, she has a great range, her pitch is fantastic, blah, blah, blah. But like everybody else, uh, she grew up with Armenian folk and Armenian spiritual music. So she's, again, one of these people that can read anything, but with a real Armenian soul. And then Arpani Derpatroshian is a real phenomenon because she's a contralto, a true contralto, not an alto. She can sing way, way, way down low. So many times I'll write something and then in the studio, I'll have her double it an octave lower. So she's way, way down there and it just sounds phenomenal. Um, so I'm really, really lucky to have these people. And over the last 10 years of us touring, we've all gotten very close. I mean, they are the most delightful group of people I've ever met in my life. I always say when we're, we spend a lot of time, we're either flying or, or often we're, we're driving in a van. And when they're together, they're always either laughing or singing or sleeping. And, you know, they're just a, a delightful group of people to be with. I really feel lucky to have them. You know, uh, John, your music, um, kind of, especially recently with the Epiphany Project, and obviously the Nahash Ensemble, which we are going to feature a track um, a little bit later in this podcast. You know, your, your music actually kind of defies genres. Um, you know, I, I can hear a little Carl Orff in there. I can hear um, kind of new music. I can hear classical folk. I, I suppose if anybody wants to find a genre of music, it's going to be in this uh, particular project. How did your experience and your extensive experience in the music industry as a composer for documentary films really kind of help shape this current work? Because you have been quite prolific in that area. Yeah, I did. I scored a lot of films when I was younger uh, over the course of about 15 years. That was mostly what I did. Truthfully, I don't think that had much to do with anything. Uh, I I was you know I was doing that to make a living. You know, one of the I can't imagine a worse thing to be in this world than a classical music composer or or maybe a poet or something. But it's it's not an easy road, obviously, unless you're going to be an academic, which I did spend three years teaching at a university, and I I made a very clear decision that this was not what I wanted to do. Uh, so I did start scoring a lot of films. I don't know that it's added to what I now do, except for the fact that I no longer write abstract music. That is to say, I don't write, I can no longer write music that isn't about something, which is why it goes hand in hand with what I was talking about earlier about the text being so important. You know, I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to write a string quartet again. Or a piano sonata or something. It, it has to be about something. And in, in the case of the Nagash Ensemble, it's about these texts. Uh, but in terms of the sound of the music or what the music is or, or what you said about it defying uh, genres, to me, it's a very, it's, it's all very obvious. I mean, 
I grew up in America. Now in America, you're going to hear a lot of, and I, I grew up in the 60s, basically, late 50s, 60s, 70s. You're going to hear a lot of Motown. You're going to hear a lot of urban music. Um, you're going to hear, of course, a lot of popular music, which for me at that time, everything from Beatles, singer-songwriters, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Dylan, whatever. That's You can't avoid hearing that stuff. But in my house, my I grew up in a very close-knit Armenian community. Uh, I, my father did not own any records that were not Armenian records. That's all they had. Uh, so th and that's all I heard. And of course, that's what you heard at the weddings and in church and, and um, you know, all Armenian events. Um, so the sound of that was always there. But my main course of study was in Western classical music, mostly as a composer. So I, I do have a, you know, I was always gobbling up uh, music theory textbooks on counterpoint, on 20th century harmony, whatever. Uh, so now this music that I write is... You know, it is those things. It's as much, you know, Armenian folk sounding music as it is, you know, contemporary classical. I think there's as much Steve Reich as there is Komitas as there is James Brown. I mean, it, all those elements are kind of in there. Uh, I don't I'm not conscious of that. I, you know, if I have any secret to anything or anything that I do is to just not consciously do anything. I would never sit and try and write something that sounds Armenian or something that sounds contemporary or something that sounds medieval, you know, I, I, although I did listen to a lot of uh, medieval polyphonic vocal music, you know, music before box time, especially vocal music from that period. But I would never consciously try and imitate anything. All I do is I sit and listen to the text and reflect on their meaning and then just do the most obvious thing in the world. Um, and that's, that's what it becomes. Now, what is the most obvious thing in the world to somebody who's listened to a lot of different musics like that, you know, that's going to be different for different people. And for me, what, what came out is this body of work that we now perform. John, uh, you and your family, obviously the immensely talented uh, Bette Williams, who is a musician and singer, uh, your wife, and your son, Jack. Um, you are a family of musicians. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask you a little bit about the journey from Philadelphia to Armenia, because at some point in your life and your career, you made a conscious decision to spend part of the time in Armenia. But, you know, I, I grew up in the Chicago area, so I grew up at the tail end of uh, Schulte, and then you know Baron Boyum came in. With you, you had Eugene Ormandy, and then Ricardo Muti. Mm -hmm. um, from the days of you kind of going to the symphony, let's say, and being awed by these incredible conductors, you know, throughout your career as a, as a composer, living in New York to Armenia, could you just kind of tell me a little bit about that path and that journey? Because it has been quite a rich one, that's for sure. Well, it's been very circuitous. That's that's definitely. Uh, I and I have done a lot of different things, um, and I think because I have this Western classical background and have a master's degree in in composition and conducting, I did kind of start out as an academic, but then made a conscious decision to not do that. And at that time, there weren't the same opportunities that there are now for composers. I think now 
the world is rich with comp, uh, you know, commissions for all sorts of things. And, and it's in some ways never been a better time to be a, a younger composer. But back then, and we're talking early 80s, late 70s, if you weren't going to be an academic and you wanted to only do what you wanted to do, there weren't that many opportunities. So like I said, that's what got me involved in, in, in film music and whatnot. Uh, so I, I was leading this very academic life. I was doing a lot of conducting. Uh, I had studied conducting with a, a, a phenomenal conducting teacher, the man who wrote the, the book, The Grammar of Conducting, Max Rudolph, who was Stravinsky's assistant for a long time and was just a phenomenal, both a conductor and, and a teacher. Um, so I always had that background as both a, a composer and a conductor. But I completely stopped all of that. One day, in a, in a kind of sudden thing, it was right around the time when a lot of the new technologies started coming out, when digital recordings were happening. Now, to your younger listeners, this is going to really date me. But, you know, there was a time when recordings were I'm not made it. digitally. <laughs> and... and um. New digital synthesizers, things like the Synclavier, Fairlight, PPG, all these things started sounding phenomenal. And I really wanted to dive into that world. Uh, and I did wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I, I opened up a, a digital recording studio in Philadelphia, got a lot of this technology. Uh, and in order to pay for it, in order to keep it the kind of cutting edge of that stuff, I had to start doing a lot of commercial work. Then I made another radical shift. Um, I, I I knew I didn't want to do film scores anymore. And I'd been working with uh, uh, Bette Williams, who's a, who is a, a very phenomenal singer. We have an ensemble called Epiphany Project, which, uh, again, it's kind of considered world music. It's, it's very folky, but uh, it's hard to, another genre that's hard to define. And we had started touring in Europe, um, but it was really hard because of the film scores. You know, there's a very kind of demanding thing. You're in a studio 16 hours a day. People take what they're doing very, very seriously. Uh, the television world is even worse in some ways because everything has to air at the last minute. You're making changes. Yeah, I found I could never make a plan to go on tour because schedules would change uh, and, and it was a real pain in the neck. So at a certain point, I just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I remember I came home uh, to my wife, Bet, and I said, I, I announced to everybody, I, I'm not going to be doing film scores anymore. Uh, you know, I just have to tell you that. And this was right before we were about to go on our tour. And she told me, well, I have news for you, too. I'm pregnant. <laughs> and this was the wow. day before we were about Surprise. to leave on tour. And that day that we left for tour, we started bombing Iraq for the first time. Uh, this was, uh, and so it was just a very, very, uh, tumultuous change. You know, when we got to Europe, that was all anybody wanted to talk about, you know, was the political situation. Um, yeah. And so then, uh, the journey to Armenia is interesting because I, I have to credit somebody for that. And that's not a cartoonian, you know, not a cartoonian. Absolutely. You know, oh. the Nadegatsi Institute is a, it's really an institution. It's a treasure. And it, it is. Uh, yeah. I know that you've worked together, um, you know, professionally, but also you guys are good friends. But yes, I do know him and uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, well, he, he contacted me out of the blue. He had heard my music somewhere and 
I didn't really know him. And you have to understand, I, again, was born in an Armenian household, uh, Armenian community, uh, but I wasn't that Armenian. I, don't, I didn't speak Armenian. I couldn't claim to be the most knowledgeable person about anything Armenian. I love the music. I love the food. I love the dancing. I love the culture. But I wasn't that Armenian. I didn't go to all Armenian events. I didn't only date Armenian women, whatever. Um, I was I was proud to be Armenian, but I wasn't. Th it wasn't really on my mind. So I get this call from Nadek Hartunian, and he he wants to meet for dinner, and I agree. And he starts telling me about Armenia and all the work he's doing there. And over the course of a bottle of wine or maybe two, he says, uh, so you've really got to come to Armenia. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I'll definitely. Yeah, that would be great. He said, OK, how about uh, next week? I said, well, no, I, you know, I can't go next week. I, you know, I said, all right, well, how about, and it was like, he picked a date like three weeks from now. I said, yeah, nah, let me go home and talk to my wife, but I, I'm not sure it's going to work out. I talked to my wife about it. She said, wow, that'd be a great idea. And then I got a call uh, about a project I was working on that had got pushed back. And suddenly that time was free. And so I went and it was almost a lark. And I was, you know, not met there. And this was in 2005. Yeah. So it was the 90th anniversary of the genocide. So there was a lot going on. Um, there are a lot of conferences, a lot of things going on. I just happened to be there at that time. I think I got there April 20th or 21st or something. Uh, I saw the work that Nadeg was doing through Nadegatsi Art Institute, and I, it completely knocked me out. I mean, he had built this little gem of a cultural center that was doing all sorts of things in, uh, you know, with film and with lectures and with visual arts and all this stuff. And they'd have some uh, music performances. And I said, wow, you know, it's a shame there's not something like this for composers here. He said, yeah, well, that's why you're here. I was like, oh, <laughs> and I, I, the more I thought about it, I, I, I ended up coming up with this idea of holding an award for young Armenian composers in different genres. Now, at that time, there wasn't a lot of people doing stuff in electronic music. There's not a big uh, thing of film scoring there. We ended up doing this uh, competition. This was in, I forget what year it was, maybe 2006. And uh, it was in all these different categories, songwriting, improvisation, new classical music, electronic music, and film scoring. And I ended up getting three judges for each category. One Armenian judge from Armenia, uh, one Armenian uh, diasporan judge, you know, so somebody who was not living in Armenia had, you know, experience in, in the rest of the world, but was Armenian. And then one totally non-Armenian judge. Uh, and it was fascinating. And I was able to get really, really top-notch people. Um, and it was, a, it was a great, great journey. I ended up building a, a small recording studio at Nadegasi Art Institute with Nadeg. I started teaching there. Uh, we had this competition. It just kind of got me very immersed in Armenia and Armenian culture. And that was the time when I was completely ready to stop scoring films. So I ended up spending a lot of time in Armenia and it uh, brought on a lot of changes, obviously. John, um, speaking of, of Armenian, kind of the music scene there, 
obviously, you know, with the Naregatsu Institute and you know, your contributions to culture there, um, what, are, what, is, what are some of the changes that have happened in the last 15 years? F- for example, for example, um, I remember you and I kind of taking a walk in New York City. This is about a good 15, 16 years ago. And you had mentioned the name of a very, very young but dynamic composer in Artur Avanesov. And him and I actually became colleagues at American University of Armenia. Mm-hmm. It was kind of talk about circuitous routes. Um, you know, he is now, you know, he is now considered, uh, you know, one of the great Armenian composers. How has been kind of your interaction with these composers and how have, how, how have things changed over the last 15 years there? Well, yeah, Arthur, Arthur really is a treasure. You know, he's, he was, he's really brilliant and he's one of these gems that you find in Armenia. Um, you know, it's, it's a really tricky situation. Uh, there's a lot of great things. There's so much wonderful, wonderful music coming out of Armenia. It's funny. I, I, this is not a very popular thing to say all the time, but I always tell people that Armenia has some of the deepest, most profound music and culture you will have anywhere in the world. And also some of the most horrific, superficial, you know, you know, when it's bad, it's some of the worst you'll find anywhere in the world. (laughs) The extreme. I'm not always. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not always sure people can tell the difference. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Some of it I really love. Some of it I don't. Some of it sometimes smacks of pastiche. Again, this whole idea of ethno jazz, when it's good, it's great. You know, I love it. You know, the work of uh, Aradinkshin, uh, Arto Tumpayajin, you know, uh, some of that stuff is just profound and really deep. But then sometimes when you just play jazz with a quasi Middle Eastern scale or something, and sometimes uh, that stuff rubs me the wrong way. Same thing with classical music. You know, there'll be this, uh, you can incorporate a, a, a duduk or a canon into a classical thing. It doesn't make it special in and of itself unless you're really doing something new with it. My interest is always in uh, culture that is is rooted in Armenian soil, but is really doing something new with it. and And that's not so easy to come by um it's that it goes back to what i was saying before about whether your roots go deep in something or are not a good example of that one of my favorite armenian artists tigran hamazian you know there's a guy who's you know his roots in armenian folk music and everything are are very very deep and yet his 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 jazz knowledge is profound. I mean, he's a he's a knockout pianist, and a, he's just phenomenal. So I, th- I think he's a great artist, and I I, I love what he does. Uh, Artur Tunkajan's another one. I mean, is his his command his, he's such a natural musician. Ada again is another one that that these the, the people the work they're doing is profound. And then there's a younger generation too. I mean, a guy like Arik Bergorian, you know, from Bambir. I love what he's doing with Vishop. Uh, I think it, yeah, it's that's really a great. great. I, that's a great. Oh my album. God, 
I'm, to, to be honest, I, I love it more than Bambir. I, I think he's really on to something with that. And I really like Arik a lot. And I hope he gets that music out there more. And I'd love to see him tour more with it because I think it's really special. It's really unusual. It's undeniably Armenian. And yet it's as hip as anything you're going to hear uh, in any kind of indie rock circles or whatever. I love turning people on to Arik Gregorian's music. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, it, it, you know the what you say about kind of uh, the ethno jazz um, movement, uh, I, I should say, you know, which really kind of again with with Ada, I mean that 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 uh, he really kind of set the stage. But you know, even people like Mikhail Voskanyan, um, mm-hmm. uh, this is part of that new generation. But I got to tell you, with Adik, I mean, I was at Cal May, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, and yep. I saw him perform, and it was hypnotic because I love it. I it love hypnotic. it. Yeah. There's space. There's space in the music, and it's not just like this three to five minute, you know, track. It is a, you know, a twelve, thirteen, fourteen minute uh, piece of work that that is not hurried. It's not rushed. There's a lot of air in the composition in the arrangements, and so I hear you, man. There's there's some incredible, incredible music coming out but then when it's bad it's bad so yeah yeah we certainly won't talk about the bad (laughs) no we we can't we we definitely cannot um so what i wanted to ask you about um to kind of close out this interview is that you've got a new album out now this is a live album um tell us a little bit about this live album and why you decided to go with this particular approach i've always on my own label i've always put out studio albums but recently, my last couple albums uh, that I've put out for some artists have been live. They've captured this magic. I've heard this recording. It is phenomenal. People are going to love it. Uh, tell, me, tell us a little bit about it from your own words. Yeah. Well, there is something that happens when you're in a room with something. And when you're playing for an audience, there is a feedback loop between the, the performers and the audience. You know, nothing makes up for that. Not a video, not a YouTube video, not a great, perfectly shot. That doesn't matter. There's something that happens physically when you're in the room with the musicians, the energy. I don't want to get all metaphysical about it, but there's something going on between an audience and a performer, a a good performer and a good audience anyway. So I had always wanted to capture that. And also the live recordings Uh, The live performances, I mean, are different from the recordings, even though the music is written out and everyone's singing and playing what they what they do. It just takes it. It's taken on such a different energy as we've performed this stuff over the years. So I really wanted to make a live recording. We had a fairly interesting tour in January, just this past January, where we played and I'm not exaggerating here, eight concerts in seven countries in seven days. That means uh-huh. on one day we, wow. played, we played two concerts. Luckily, that was in the same country. But one day we ended up doing a concert in um, Harlem at the Philharmonic Hall. Now, the Philharmonic Hall in Harlem is, you know, beautiful. It's like Avery Fisher Hall, big classical music style hall. Uh, we usually perform amplified, but in this case, uh, we they they didn't want to use microphones, which was fine because it was a perfect hall. We can do that in with a, in a hall with good acoustics. That same night, we were booked to play two hours away in um, Den Haag at a place called Pard. Pard is a legendary 
indie rock venue that's been around for forever. You know, pretty big sized rock club. So we, we play this pristine classical music hall. Luckily, it was an afternoon show. I think it was at, at four o'clock. We ended at six, got in the van, drove for two hours, showed up at around eight, did a quick sound check and played a nine o'clock show at Pard. We had tried to record at a couple of venues on this tour because I wanted to do a live record. And I had picked some of the venues that were more classical to record in, you know, because I knew they'd have like a good Steinway D and good microphones and all that stuff. And I recorded a couple of those shows and they were they were they were good. And I was listening to and trying to figure out which show we were going to put out. And then I got a, a, a Facebook message from my manager saying, hey, did you see this? And here the guy, there's a legendary uh, promoter who does all the booking for part. And he listed his the 10 greatest performances of all time. OK, live performances that he had seen. He's an older guy. And it was like James Brown at, at so-and-so and Jimi Hendrix at whatever and Van Morrison and this list of people of his top 10. And one of the 10 was the Nagash Ensemble at Parsh. <laughs> and I went, that's, that's crazy. So uh, it turns out the engineer there ran a live recording from the board. So I said, well, I guess I should hear that. So my manager got a copy of that. And sure enough, that's what ended up being the, um, the, the live recording. It wasn't one of these fancy <laughs> classical halls. It was at this huge rock club called Part. Uh, and I, yeah, I am really happy with the way the record turned out. You know, John, it's funny that you mentioned the accidental recording because um, the first guest that I had on this podcast was, uh, was Ada Dingchun. And, um, you know, some of his live recordings that he's released were basically accidental. Um, so the fact that you have created this just incredibly rich, warm sound and that it, you, you, you know, that it was accidental. Um, sometimes that is a testament to spontaneity, uh, to, to whatever it is that, that kind of, you know, brings, uh, these dynamics together. But I, I, I gotta tell you, I love this recording. I think people are going to absolutely love it. And if this is their gateway into the music of John Hodian and the Narash Ensemble, where they can kind of go backwards and listen to some of the other stuff that, that you've done, um, it's, it's a hell of a way to start. So, John, um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me. You've contributed mightily to, to culture. You've, you've contributed a ton to, to Armenia. And, um, and I look forward to seeing you back in Yerevan at some point. Yes, yeah, same here, Rafi. Would you know when you're going back? Good question. That's a good question. I guess that, that's a good that question for all on, of us. <laughs> depends on uh, lifting the restrictions, but yeah. um, but I, I do I do uh, look forward to seeing you there. And best of luck to you uh, and your family. And um, stay healthy. And we will be listening to your stuff uh, soon. That's for sure. Thanks, Rafi. I really love what you're doing with the podcast. You're you're really off to a bang. Your guests so far have all been great, and it's a, just a great, great idea. I'm, I'm a big fan. You got it, John. Well, listen, you take care and um, say hi to Beth as well. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care, man. Bye-bye. This concludes my conversation with John Hodian. Before closing out the program, I wanted to make a few recommendations. 
In 2003, I released the second album by the Hover Chamber Choir of Armenia, entitled Six Fables. It's based on the work of the 13th century Armenian priest Vartan Agetsi, with music composed by Stepan Babatorosyan. The other album I wanted to recommend is a new release by Arik Grigorian's Bishop Ensemble, entitled Soul Body. It's an earthy and folksy Armenian rock album, representing some of the best contemporary music coming out of Armenia today. I wanted to clarify something mentioned in the podcast. When John mentioned Harlem, he was actually referring to the city in Holland, not the section of New York City. Just thought you should know that. To close out the program for today, I wanted to play an excerpt from John Hodian's extraordinary new work entitled Songs from Exile. This is a live performance recorded in part at a venue called Pard in Den Haag, Netherlands, in January of 2020. This new album is simply called The Narash Ensemble Live, Volume 1. The movement I'll be featuring is called Meditations on Greed and Poverty and is set to the poems of Magadich Narash. The vocals are sung by sopranos Hasmik Baldassarian and Datevik Movsesian, with Arpine Derpetrosian singing alto. Aram Nigerosian is on oud, Emmanuel Hovanesian on Armenian wind instruments, Dikran Hovanesian on Dehol, with composer John Hodian at the piano. Please visit narashensemble.com for more information on how to obtain this and other recordings by John Hodian. Once again, thanks for listening, and catch you next time. Here's a live performance of the Narash Ensemble of Armenia with meditation on greed and poverty. It is mind-blowing.
All music featured on this podcast is done so with the express permission of the artist. This is a Pomegranate Music production.